0: do the um, questions and answers after the video. Then we'll have a good discussion. So. Should I pray? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Amen. Sounds good. We'll all bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that we can gather together in freedom and learn about your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at the Ten Commandments together again, we would develop a biblical worldview so that we would not become like the world and that we may help the world to think differently and all for the sake of your name and your glory and for your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: This morning I'm speaking about the Eighth Commandment, Thou Shalt Not Steal. I've been about once a month preaching through the Ten Commandments and one commandment at a time. So let me give you a little overview of where I'm going today with this sermon. As you should know, this is not really the most complicated verse I ever preached on. (laughs) You shall not steal. (laughs) Um, And um, basically, that means if it's not yours, don't take it. All right. Well, I think I'll probably have a few other ideas, too. Also, uh, the Eighth Commandment mitigates the abuse of power and it assures property rights. We're going to talk about that as far as property rights, as far as the biblical worldview goes. Christians should be workers, and Christians should be givers. And I'm going to apply this prohibition of stealing to both employers and workers. Greed is one of the main causes of stealing, the worst stealing is stealing from God, and we have a verse about that. And then I'm going to do something a little e- extraordinary today. I'm going to talk about America. As you know, America has rejected the Ten Commandments. We don't even want to symbolically have the Ten Commandments etched on granite or in any courthouse or any public place. And I'm going to talk about what's going on in our country, why we've become pagan and some implications for us as Christians living in a now pagan society. And I, I want to explain how that happened and what the best antidote to it is. You shall not steal. Now, the Ten Commandments were spoken by God on Mount Sinai to Israel. The ten words, they're called in the Hebrew, were heard by all of the people. After God pronounced these ten Commandments. the people said, okay, Moses, you talk to God, we are, we're afraid we're going to die. And so God then spoke to Moses as face-to-face as the man speaks to his friend, it says in Exodus, and Moses is the mediator of the Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments embody, in a, in a short form, embody the whole principle of God's law. The Ten Commandments tell us that God has spoken. The Ten Commandments tell us that God has spoken moral law. Knowing what God has said is how our minds are renewed. It's how our lives are based on something solid and stable and unshakable. The Word of God never changes. The Word of God never fails. And so the Ten Commandments embody God speaking to man. They weren't dreamed up. They weren't um, concocted by legal scholars They were revealed by God. The eighth one forbids stealing. Let me talk about some of the implications of this commandment. Property rights are given by God. This is one of the uh, important contributions of Moses to Western civilization. The Old Testament has an understanding of law, an understanding of society that gives humans property rights. This is a very important uh, understanding, and all socialistic societies really transgress this principle. If everybody owned everything communally, there would be no need for property rights. There would be no need for... laws to protect property rights. The property rights are given by God, and the right of ownership of private property is a God-given and Christian understanding of the world. Property rights were protected by law in Israel. Look at the laws about not moving the ancient boundaries, how inheritances were to be handled, uh, penalties for... Transgressing someone else's property rights are part of the Old Testament law and part and parcel of this view of law and view of life that is very much biblical and very important. When law does not protect property rights, the result is the rule of might. And uh, the principle becomes might is right. Anywhere where the rule of law breaks down and lawlessness becomes the norm, or the anarchy becomes the norm. What will happen, and happens every single time, and this has happened throughout human history, is whoever is the best armed, whoever is the strongest, whoever is the most ruthless, whoever is the least scrupulous, will end up controlling the property. The Old Testament is built on the principle that. Uh, just government under God protects property, which is really a protection for everybody particularly the poor or the weak or the most vulnerable who could be exploited by those who have power. I'll show you some of that uh, as we go on here. Socialism is inimical to Dick said, why are you using that word? Socialism is hostile (laughs) to the nature of humans and the well-being of society. (laughs) There. Um, In other words, God created humans in his image. God knows what it means to be human, male and female. He created us. God gives laws that are suitable to humans in the very nature that we have. Okay? And socialism, uh, I'm going to be quoting from Charles Hodgson about 1872, and he was talking about it then, was an idea that came along that really uh, is guaranteed to fail because it doesn't suit us, it doesn't fit the way humans are. One of my concerns today is that America is heading in a direction of socialism quicker rather than slower, and that Process will lead to massive and unrelenting poverty. It has every time, and it has, and it will every single time. Because uh, I'll read from Hodge, and he'll help explain that to you. Look at Micah two, one and two, and let me give you um, the background to this. In in, in uh, Israel, in. 734 to 732 they had the Syro-Ephraimite war and what that was was the northern kingdom sided with Syria to go to war against Judah the southern kingdom and so in a sense it was a civil war according to uh, 2nd Chronicles 28 and verse 6 120,000 Jewish men were killed in that war and what happened then In the aftermath of this horrible war was that Israel was filled with the fatherless and with widows. In other words, people were vulnerable. The men that were of age to go to war were dead, so many of them. So there was no one to protect families. And what happened in that situation was that evil rulers in Israel were abusing the poor. The reason they did it was because it says here they had the power to do so. Let me read Micah 2, 1 and 2. It was written in that era of history. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is the, in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them and houses, and take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and in his inheritance. So these widows were powerless to protect themselves, and so the evil leaders abusively used that as their opportunity to grab property of the people who had lost their husbands in war. As I said earlier, socialism is uh, uh, not understood in the Old Testament. It's not how the Bible lays out Uh, law or society Uh, people are to be kind people are to give, people are to care for the widow and the orphan and to be charitable and to do alms but the idea of the common ownership of all property is not biblical I want to cite what happens here, as has happened there when they had a chance that the powerful abused the poor this is Charles Hodge writing in 1872 The conditions of the successes of this plan, socialism, on any large scale cannot be found on earth. It supposes something near perfection and all embraced within the compass of its operation. It supposes that men will labor as assiduously without the stimulus of desire to improve their condition and to secure the welfare of their families as with it. It supposes absolute disinterestedness, that means that we are selfless, and, and we want to just automatically help everybody around us. On the part of the more wealthy, the stronger, or the more able members of community. That's an assumption that's not true, and that's what Hodge said. They must be willing to forego all personal advantages from their superior endowments. It, suppo- it supposes perfect integrity on the part of the distributors of the common fund, the politicians. the spirit of moderation and contentment in each member of community to be satisfied with what others that not he may think be his equitable share. We shall have to wait till the millennium before these conditions are fulfilled. And so it fails because it fails to take into account the reality of human beings, both in their creation in God's image and in their fallenness. And so there needs to be a system of law that protects property rights and punishes evildoers, otherwise you end up with the powerful doing whatever they feel like. And you don't have the rule of law. So therefore, uh, socialistic systems have always led to failure and poverty. Now, uh, I'm gonna quote Hodge again. I'm going to also quote today uh, from others from that era. In these days, now this is 1872, in these days, when so many are disposed to throw off the authority of God and regard marriage and property as mere creatures of the law, which may be regulated or ignored at the caprice or will of the people, it is well to remind them that there is a law higher than any law of man enforced by the authority of God which no man and no community can violate with impunity. Charles Hodge, in the Systematic Theology, 1872, acknowledging what is obvious, but no more is it obvious to to people in our day. And that is, God has spoken, God has created us, God has given law, and the law of God cannot be ignored without horrible, serious consequences. And so we live in a day in which God's laws are spurned, they're ridiculed, and people are choosing to not only break the law of God but do so pridefully, arrogantly, publicly and claim that they ought to have a right to do this All right. and so it's one thing to know God's law and be ashamed of yourself because you know what you're doing isn't right it's far worse to do what you know is wrong and claim that it's right and do it publicly with no shame that's our problem now, God here has a plan for thieves. Here's God's plan for thieves. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. God wants to convert thieves and turn them into givers. All right? When somebody steals, they're, in effect, stealing a part of a person's life. Because one person works and labors and spends his or her time or effort in order to accumulate what they need for life and someone breaks into their home or however they do it and takes that because that person doesn't want to go do their own work to gain their own property. So they're stealing somebody's livelihood. They're stealing their life. They're stealing the goods that God had provided for them by the fruit of their own labor and the sweat of their own brow. So that's why stealing is so wicked. And the Christians who were in Ephesus were told that now, now that they're Christian, they should labor, they should work, and out of their own goodness, by God's grace, as they have more they can give to others. The way to break the spirit of stealing is by becoming a giver. And that's what Ephesians 4, 28 teaches us. James 5, 4 and 5 talks about the ones who would steal from their workers. Let me talk about power, and we'll go to this verse. If you look at history, even American history, you'll see that whenever things get so that one group has exclusive power and their right to use it or abuse it, whoever that might be, they will tend to use it in a way to abuse whoever they come in contact with. That's why we need the rule of law. And around the turn of the previous century, um, uh, owners of businesses were not regulated in how they treated people, so we had horrible abuses of workers. But then, uh, to correct that, there were labor unions and things like that, and then we see times where the labor unions have more power than the owners, and then they abuse the company they work for. It can go either way. It isn't that one's good and the other's bad. It's that humans are sinful. And that when power is unchecked, we tend to abuse it. And so we in America have known in the past anyhow that we need just laws, checks, and balances so that we are restrained from abusing power. Now I'm going to read about that from James. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabia. You have lived luxurious, luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure and fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. God sees how we are. My dad told a story... <laughs> Um, my dad told me this story when he was in his 70s, and his story was from when he was a teenager. But you never forget how the adults in the world treat you. Here's the story, my dad's story. This was the Great Depression in the 1930s, and my dad got a job working for a farmer for a dollar a day. Okay, so he worked a month for the farmer for a dollar a day. Well, when it t- came time to be paid... The the owner, the, the, the farmer, told my dad to meet him in a public place. So they were in this restaurant where all these people were having coffee and pie. And the owner comes out with this big pile of ones and he and he says to my dad, How many days did you work? And he hands him one. How many days did you work? And he wouldn't he wouldn't pay him for every day. He was he was shaming him publicly and by making it look like he was had a lot of money because they were all ones. And he, and he knocked down how many days he would be paid by dad by implying in front of all those people that he hadn't really worked all those days that he'd worked. And so dad worked 30 days, and he got, say, $23 or something like that instead of his dollar a day. Now, that is abusive. Now Dad told me that story when he was in his 70s that it happened in the 1930s. He never forgot who that guy was and how he treated him. I, I've told the congregation before, treat the young people that work for you generously. Treat them right. They're going to remember. I do. I remember a farmer that was hired me, and he lived about a mile away, and I was a teenager, and he hired me to paint all of his farm buildings white. And he said, how much do you get paid... For working for the farmers around the community, I said a dollar and fifteen cents an hour. I got quite a raise from my dad's day, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the farmer says, "All right, when you work for me, it's a dollar forty, and I'm, and you don't need to bring a lunch. You're going to eat with my wife and I." And uh, I never forgot it. I'm telling you the story. There was a godly Christian man. That extra money wasn't a lot for him, but it meant everything to me. He was saying, your time is worth something. People remember how you treat them, and we can steal from our workers by not treating them right and not paying them what's reasonable for the sort of job that they're doing. But we can also steal from our employers. Now, this was written to slaves. How much more does it apply to us who are actually being paid for what we do? with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good thing each one does this he will receive back from the Lord whether slave or free it's been a lot of years before since I've had the sort of job where I interact with other workers because I've been a pastor for so many years and I'm working in a church but I have had jobs where I worked with guys and the amazing thing that I see from many people, is how they just hated to work. And many of the people that I remember working with made it their goal to do as little as possible and yet not lose their job. However little I can do, however much money I can wring out of my employer, and how little I can give him back for what he paid me, that's my goal in life. That should never be the case for a Christian. Dear Christian brothers and sisters, it should be the opposite. We should be working harder than the ones around us. When we take somebody's paycheck and we don't give them what they paid us to do, we're stealing. That's a sort of stealing that maybe we don't think we're doing, but it is stealing. And we should render service. Remember, we're serving the Lord. So if we're not doing our job, we're not doing our job for God. So... That's stealing. It says it several other places. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ you serve. See, the slaves that are addressed by Paul might feel that they really aren't getting anything for their service they have a roof over their head they were fed hopefully treated properly but Paul wrote them as Christians telling them that you're serving the Lord and the Lord will reward you the reward in heaven is even greater so when we're working we're doing our jobs even if it's just being in the home uh, as a mother or uh, maybe a homeschool teacher Whatever we may do, we should work heartily with joy, realizing that it's a great benefit from God that he allows us to work and labor, and that we're doing so for him. That'll bring joy into our situation. And I don't know, you, you all have different situations, but you ever notice those people that you work with that are always complaining all the time? They complain about everything. They complain about their job. They complain about their boss. They complain about the working conditions. They complain about everything. Are those happy people? No, they're miserable, and they just make it worse. But if you show up with joy, hey, I'm serving the Lord today. I'm going to do a good job. Your day will go a lot quicker. Now we want to talk about greed. Greed. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. See, um, greed and stealing is an indication of a lack of faith. It It means we don't trust God. It means we don't believe God's promises. It means we don't believe God's going to take care of us. And so we steal because of our greed, because we think that the more that we have, the better off that we are but that should not be named amongst Christians because it is a form of idolatry and idolatry is having other gods before God remember the very first commandment and so money things shouldn't be our God we certainly have a problem with this in America don't we how many of these uh, Ponzi schemes have come to the surface lately how many people have so much stuff they don't know which yacht to use today and here they're stealing from poor people who are supposedly investing. This is greed, and it's a horrible thing, and our American society is overtaken with it and it's doing us much harm as a nation. Romans 13, 6 and 7, we can steal from God's ordained rulers. For because of this you, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing, rendered to all... What is due them, Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. When we are taught to be good citizens. We're taught to pay our taxes. We're taught to submit to the rulers that God puts over us. We're taught to t- treat other people with honor. And as Christians, we sometimes need a lot of grace for this because the people we have to honor aren't always honorable but you can honor the position that someone has and pray for our leaders and so on I'll be talking about that in a bit and the last point about stealing would be the most uh, serious type of stealing and that is stealing from God a son honors his father and his servant his master if I am a father where is my honor this is the Lord speaking and if I'm a master where is my respect says the Lord of Hosts, O priests who despise my name. But you see, how, how have we despised your name? Well, Malachi was about, after the restored temple in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they had become lax, and they were just perfunctory duties that the priests went through. They did their thing. They brought the lame in for the offering rather than uh, uh, an offering that was worth something to them, and they weren't teaching the word of God to people, and they were just going about their religious business and to them, God said that you are stealing from me. They were, they were stealing in the sense that they weren't giving. They were stealing from God's honor. They were stealing from uh, the Lord's worship and respect and all of the things that God is uh, due because he's God. When we fail to honor God, we are robbing, we think God, but ultimately we shall be punished for doing so because God is not mocked whatever a man sows that he shall also reap. We ultimately are not going to get by stealing from God. We should give him the worship that's due his holy name. Now I'm going to talk about America because I wanted to make this application and I think we need to think about what's going on in our own country. As you know, the Ten Commandments have been pushed out of the public sphere our politicians have determined that they don't even want to see the ten commandments on a wall they don't want to read them they don't want to hear about them they want them gone. so symbolically we've as a country said to God we will not hear you we will not listen to you we will not respect your law we shall make laws as we see fit without respect to what God has said. I want to talk about paganism. Uh, and, I, and I, I, Please listen to me. This is very, very important. And I don't often talk about these sort of things, but I think we need to because of what's going on in our country. The only difference between a Christian and a pagan is that we know what God said and we know God. Right? Now, a pagan is simply anyone who doesn't know what God said. In other words, you just take a people, let's say they're on an island somewhere, and they never had a Bible, and they never had a missionary, and then they go about their life. They just imagine, maybe there's gods, maybe there's goddesses, maybe we should sacrifice our children, maybe we should do this. They make up some sort of religious practice because they don't know what God said. If you don't know what God said, you don't know what God's like. You don't know what his moral law is. You don't know uh, his love. You don't know how he wants us to treat one another. You don't know anything about the world that God created in an infallible way. You can only know what you can see, and you can't see God, and so you can only guess what God is like. So, uh, the Bible, the inspired and errant word of God, is our firewall against paganism. All right, To the degree that the Bible is taught to people, to children, to citizens, even if they're not converted, it will be an influence on them the Word of God will influence us if we know what it says. It'll inform us concerning a Christian worldview. It'll inform us concerning what life is really like and what's important and what's not important. Pagans are those with no special revelation from God. Inasmuch as America's citizens and system of, of law have been influenced by the Bible, to that degree... We have been more Christian and less pagan. Take note of that. Take note of that carefully. It's very, very important for you to know. There was a time when almost all of our citizens were raised to know the Bible. There was a time when the Bible was front and center in every church not just some churches. There was a time where everybody knew the Ten Commandments. Everybody knew God's law. Everybody knew about Jesus Christ. Everybody knew the books of the Bible, the contents of the Bible, because they were taught, they were preached, they were written about, they were talked about, they were quoted in public speeches. That time is no more. We've thrown off the authority of God. We've told God here in America, we don't care what you have said. We're not going to teach it to our children. We're not going to quote from it. And most of us aren't even going to preach it from the pulpit if we're a pastor. If you want to know why America is pagan and why you look around and you see wickedness from one end of the country to another... You see these people protesting for their right to do wickedly, publicly, without even being ashamed of their own sin. You want to know why it's like that? You can blame the pastors of the United States of America. Blame the churches. Blame the liberals. In the 1880s, over in Germany, they decided that the Bible couldn't be believed by anybody who's modern because it talks about demons and angels and things and miracles that things can't, people can't be expected to believe. And so the modernist movement took root, it came over here to America, and it swept through all of the big mainline denominations. We had the modernist, fundamentalist controversy. The brick and mortar went to the liberals. The seminaries that used to be the great seminaries, I'm quoting from Hodge, he was a theologian at Princeton. Princeton. Was Princeton today? They certainly don't have any Charles Hodge. And so the Bible went out of the churches. I grew up in a church that had taken the Bible out. I grew up in a church where they had two pulpits, one over on one side and one over on the other. And during the service, the pastor would go over with his big robe, and he'd open his great big Bible over here, and he'd read something out of it. That's part of what we did, okay? He'd close that up, and then we'd do other things. Then he'd go over to this other one where he's preached, and out comes the Reader's Digest. a little ditty about this or that I was taught the Bible to a certain degree in Sunday school in the 50's but when I was 16 years old I went to camp and I was having doubts about God and doubts about the Bible and I took a Bible class at camp and after the Bible class it was taught by an ordained minister I asked the minister about my doubts and he says don't feel guilty about your doubts the Bible is not true there's no Adam and Eve, there was no Jonah, Jesus didn't walk on water, Jesus didn't do miracles, and there's no resurrection. This is what the pastor told me. And I thought, well, why am I feeling guilty about doubting something that's not true anyhow? And I said, so why do we have Bibles? He says, so they're stories to help us live better lives. Well, I decided I didn't want to live a better life, so I went to the golf course. I just lived an ordinary life because I didn't see how stories that were not true were going to make me better. Thankfully, the Lord had another idea, and I was converted. But anyhow, though, all all these churches, the Bible went out, and they're not preached. Then, insidiously, in America, comes the seeker-sensitive movement. And now a bunch of smart people got together and said, you know... We need to get everybody, we need to be relevant. And we need to get everybody to come into church because they're unchurched, they're unchurched. And so if we keep preaching things like I'm preaching today, can you imagine how many seekers would want to come and hear this? Okay, so uh, you can't preach the Ten Commandments, you can't preach God's law, you can't preach uh, from the Bible because they don't want to hear it. And so we're going to do a marketing survey and find out what they do want to hear and then give it to them. So the Bible went out of the evangelical churches. So now the Bible's got out of the liberal churches. The Bible's got out of the evangelical churches. They're not totally out, just any solid expository preaching where people would know what God said. I'm telling you this, people. The Bible is God speaking to America. God isn't speaking through prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Today, speaking through the word. And if the Bible goes out of our churches, then God is not speaking to us. All right? and when God is not speaking to us then we become pagan and we become pagan, we become wicked and we think stupid things like can I say that in church I, I just did literally we, we become stupid we start worshiping the creature rather than the creator because we don't know the difference then the emergent church came along and told us don't worry about if you have the Bible or not nobody knows what it means you can't know what the constitution means you can't know what the Bible means the reader determines the meaning so God has gone silent other than where the Bible is taught but they don't want to listen to the Bible, so they go to mysticism. They talk to spirits, and imagine that the spirits talking to them are God. The Eighth Commandment that I'm preaching on today, it protects property rights. That's been fundamental. It's been fundamental in America. Thank God that we've had a country that protects our property rights, and that we have a Constitution that reflects, to a certain degree, things that God has said but they're under attack socialism is waiting at the doors because we don't think like Christians when the Bible's not taught in churches the citizens become increasingly pagan it's just what's going on just the way it is Right, so when you look at some of the things that you read in the paper, some of the things that people are saying, some of the things that people are thinking, you think, how? Do you ever think you're going nuts? (laughs) Either I'm crazy or everybody around is. Well, it's because we're now surrounded by unmitigated paganism. I'm going to go back to... uh, rosier time in our history 1872 Charles Hodge there it is here's what Hodge says it is therefore the united testimony of scripture and of history that the Bible the word of God is the great means of promoting the sanctification and salvation of men that is of securing their temporal and eternal well-being those consequently who are opposed to religion. Now, in the 19th century, the term religion meant Christianity, okay? Um, I took a course on church history in America, and uh, I found out that in the 19th century, something like 80 to 90% of all printed material was Christian, Our citizenry was Christian, and they knew Christianity and Christian ideas. So so those consequently who are opposed to religion who desire the reign of indifferentism or the return of heathen doctrines and heathen morality are consistent and wise in their generation in endeavoring to undermine the authority of the Bible. Hodge says, if you want our country to be heathen, undermine the authority of the Bible. That's what they do. That's what they did. That's what happened to undermine the authority of the Bible, to, endeavor, to discourage its circulation, to discount its attendance on its preaching, and especially to oppose it being effectively taught to the young. Whatever we do, make sure the Bible gets out of all schools. Don't allow the young to be taught the Bible. Don't even let them know the Ten Commandments. That's how you make a pagan country. Now, I'm going to quote from Abraham Lincoln okay you don't see the mind (laughs) now let me tell you why though This this is just a couple paragraphs out of his second inaugural address I'm quoting this pay attention as I quote how much biblical content and doctrine and knowledge is reflected in what Abraham Lincoln said in his public inaugural address second during the civil war Abraham Lincoln. Neither party expected the war, for the war, the magnitude or the duration which is already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a, re, and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and prayed to the same God. He's talking about the north and the south. And each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of another man's faces. But let us not judge lest we be let us judge not that we be not judged. Bible verse. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been fully answered. The Almighty has his own purposes. Quote, woe to the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through its appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both the north and the south this terrible war. As the woe due to those who, by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Finally do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that a continuum to all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, And every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago. So it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in and to bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Now let me tell you about the theology that Abraham Lincoln understood, and that could be understood by his listeners. He talked about the doctrine of providence. He actually distinguished between the moral will of God and the providential will. God's providential will allows evil, God's moral will opposes it. That's what Lincoln said. Now, I say that not to make this a Blinken day, but I say that to illustrate the biblical literacy that was common in 1865 and 1872. Our citizens were taught the Bible, whether they were Christian or not. And biblical thinking was common. Not so today. If, if somebody gave that speech today, people wouldn't even know what they are talking about. Okay, now, we talk about a republic or a democracy, and we have a republic in as much as we're ruled by constitutional law. That's also under assault. But we have a democracy in as much as we vote for Representation. So, given that as much as we are a democracy in America, we have pagan citizens that are going to vote for pagan representatives. Does that make sense? You ever wonder why do they vote for these people? Well, now you know. They don't know the Bible. Pagan representatives vote for pagan laws. Pagan laws represent a pagan value system. The pagan value system is antithetical to a Christian value system. Christians in a pagan society are vexed, rejected, ridiculed and persecuted. Now I want to talk about an important thing. Uh, this We have in America a national myth. We have a national myth that's existed as long as we've been here. And the myth is that America is Israel. God has only made a covenant throughout the history of the world. God's only made a covenant with one nation, Israel. God has never made a covenant with any other nation. And we think that God made a covenant with America because we don't understand the Bible. God did not make a covenant with America. And uh, let me read to you from the Bible so you can understand how this works. I've preached on this before in the Ten Commandments. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now remember the host of heaven? So all the nations are under the stoichia, the hostile powers, and then they have human rulers. But, verse 9, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. So Yahweh chose Israel. He brought them to himself at Sinai. He gave them a covenant at Sinai, and he said, I will be your God, you will be my people, and you will dwell in the land. So Israel becomes God's chosen nation. He also warned them that if they rebelled against him, he'd throw them out, and they'd become like the nations. That's exactly what happened. Stephen said this in Acts 7. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the hosts of heaven. So then they became like all the other nations. They're just under the uh, sons of God, the hostile powers out there. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in wilderness, was it? house of Israel so Stephen says that they got thrown under the host of heaven just like all the nations that were not in this covenant relationship with God but God promises to renew a covenant under the new covenant with Israel when he saves Israel at the end of the great tribulation and then they'll again be his people now let's talk about this as it relates to America it may seem odd for me to have to preach this you would think it would be obvious that America is not Israel but preachers in America have been talking like America is Israel the whole history of our country. They take verses out of the Old Testament for Israel and say, there, that's America. America is not in the Old Testament. Well, you didn't know that? All right. God can and does institute covenants. Absolutely. Humans can enter into covenant with one another. Marriage is a covenant. God institutes covenants with man. He instituted one with Abraham, a unilateral one. He instituted a covenant with Israel. But when God institutes a covenant, he does it through a covenant mediator, or he does so directly, tangibly, like he did to Abraham. God speaks. God does not institute covenants without speaking. Israel is the only nation God has instituted a covenant with. I don't think anybody can disprove that. Man cannot unilaterally obligate God to a man-made covenant. Does that make sense? Can I obligate God? Say, okay, I'm going to draw up a covenant. Oh, no God, you're bound to it. You can't do that. See, that's what our, the Puritans claim they did. They came over and said, "This is going to be the new, new Israel." And they drew up a covenant and said, there, we got a covenant with God. But when did God agree to it? Who was God's spokesperson? Who was God's prophet? So we thought we unilaterally uh, made a covenant that God has to be obligated to. But he isn't. And we're not Israel. America has no special covenant status with God. Now, some really, really wise preachers, people that I admire people that you hear a lot would probably disagree with me on this but I'm throwing down the gauntlet, prove it if you think America has a covenant with God prove it, show me where God agreed to it why am I telling you this because it's bad enough to live in a pagan country All right, which is what we're doing and we're, we're, we're vexed, we're grieved. Aren't you grieved? Absolutely. I, I've talked to all kinds of Christians. We're grieved about what's going on as we see it worse around us. But why add salt to the womb by saying that now it's even worse because we're covenant breakers? You can't break a covenant you never had. It's bad enough that we just got to live with the pagans. All right. <laughs> got enough sorrow. The nation might specify a state religion, but doing so would not make it Christian. You know, there are Christian nations in the world that specify Christianity as the state religion. Do you know what those nations are like? Norway, Sweden, Germany, aren't they Christian? No, absolutely not. They're, They're more pagan than we are, a lot of them. Specifying a religion doesn't change anybody's heart. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what we need. We need the Word of God to be preached. What do we do? I want to give you some practical applications here right from the Bible. The first thing we need to do is pray for our leaders, do not allow the sorrow that we have because of what's happening to harden our hearts. We may be tempted not to pray for certain leaders because we just don 't like them we shouldn 't do that. We should pray for all of our leaders, and we should be uh, they should know that Christians are people in their society that are praying for them. The early apologists the early Christian apologists wrote to their persecutors and said. You're persecuting us, but all we, Christ told us we have to pay our taxes, so we support you with our taxes. And Christ told us we pray for you, so we pray for you. Why do you want to kill the people who are praying for you? That's what they said. We ought to be able to say the same thing. We're praying for you, and we do. God calls us to submit to civil authorities. He doesn't say submit to them if they're good. He said to submit to them. Because it's best for us if we do we, we live in a more civil society If we act civilly ourselves And the rule of law is very important And so there's the passages that teach that 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15 And Romans 1, or excuse me, Romans 13, 1 through 4 So that's something we can do if civil authorities forbid preaching the truth, we must obey God and not man. Acts four eighteen or 20 They were forbidden to preach in the name of Christ. They didn't want them to preach. They didn't mind if they healed, they just didn't want them to preach. Quit preaching Jesus to us. And they said, we ought to obey God rather than man. We cannot allow the civil authorities to silence us. People ask me, well, what are you going to do? What if they make a law? What if they come and throw you in jail because you're preaching the Ten Commandments or you're preaching against the favorite sins of the society out there so I'm going to keep preaching it I'm going to preach verse by verse by verse through the Bible as long as God gives me the ability to stand here and preach the Bible I will not quit and uh, they haul me to jail that I'll preach in jail well, at least they know I'll have a roof over my head We must continually have our minds renewed by God's word, Romans twelve two, Ephesians four twenty one through 24. This is more crucial than ever, and this is the sad thing about our churches. This is what's just so terrible. Living in these perilous times, living in the end times, living under end-time delusion, of all times, Christians need to hear the word. They need to be taught the Bible. They need to think like Christians and not like pagans. They, they need to have the ability to discern between good and evil. They need to know what God has said, and they need to know it well. And they need to be trained in it from their youth. And that's why the Armor Bearers is based on learning Scripture. That's our youth program. They learn the Bible. We, we, we're, we need to t- train them. And so if we're not sitting under the teaching of the Word of God, we're slowly becoming pagan and not even knowing it. Have you talked to Christian friends who go to churches where the Bible's not taught? Don't they think like pagans? Have you noticed that? They just think like pagans. Well, that's what happens when you don't know the Bible. Pagan is sort of just comes and attaches itself to us. We must train our children to have a Christian worldview. The society's not going to do it for us. We need to train them to think like Christians. And the way you do that is you teach them the Bible. Your kids should know the Bible. They should know very well. You know, some say, but not everybody grows up to be a Christian that grows up in a Christian home. That's true. But, as Hodge said, the Bible even has an influence of salt and light on anybody that learns it. They're still going to be better citizens. They're going to be better off for having been trained the Bible, even if they don't grow up to believe it, God forbid. We must realize that our role is to be salt and light in the midst of darkness. That much is obvious now. We need, if there's any source of light in America, it's the remnant that sits under the teaching of the Bible and believes the gospel. That's you, and God will use you. I know it's not an easy role, because where you go, you're going to feel out of place. You go anywhere in the world, and it's going to be like you're crazy compared to everybody else the way they think. Have you noticed that? Absolutely. That's what it means to be salt and light. Okay? You can't just blend in with the darkness if you're salt and light. We must evangelize the lost, including the lost in churches. Some of uh I heard the stories that some here were out handing out tracts at the Joel Steen. Was that true? Yeah, so... Praise God, evangelize people go to go, going into an evangelistic event where they won't hear the gospel. Now our evangelists don't even preach the gospel. And that's supposed to be their role. Um, the lost are in the churches. We need to preach the gospel to them. We must not allow the darkness to corrupt us, harden us or discourage us. That's the one I'm concerned about. Don't get discouraged. In a, in a time of battle, when there's a big battle going on, you're either going to be a hero or a coward. Because it's hard to be neutral. And so I believe that this is the time for us to stand up. This is the time to be the heroes and heroines. The ones that don't succumb. The ones that don't knuckle under. The ones who don't compromise the truth, the ones who will stand for the truth and tell the truth and preach the truth and explain the truth and patiently walk in the truth even when lies and darkness are all around us. This is our opportunity. We're living at the end of the end times. And so this is our chance to rise to the occasion. I have to admit, I kind of like a good battle. There's something about my nature that likes the, the battle. And so I'm not discouraged because I feel this is the time when we can fight an important battle because of the day that we're living in the remnant must be courageous in the battle be courageous and not discouraged stand up, this is your time this is your time to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might we only have one application point (laughs) If you do not have citizenship in heaven, apply for it immediately. (laughs) Yeah, we need dual citizenship, don't we? What we have down here is not what it used to be. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he who came into this world, lived a sinless life, died, and was raised... Again, as I preach every Sunday. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. Those who repent and believe the gospel immediately become citizens of heaven. Hallelujah. And that citizenship will not be corrupted. It won't be discouraging. It won't be filled with darkness. It's going to be light and light only. Be encouraged, dear ones. Be encouraged in the Lord. And I promise you, that we will continue to teach you the Bible and we'll continue to appoint teachers who will teach the Bible to children that grow up in this church that our youth groups our our youth programs will all be gospel centric and Bible centric and we will do by God's grace, by his help we'll do whatever we can to keep paganism outside of the doors of this church and bring the light of the gospel (laughs) in.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Bob, for that message. It' um, so timely still, even though we have a different president. <laughs> but uh, you could tell when you were what president was president when you were speaking. I know there's probably a lot of thoughts. I know we're out of time. We can, um, Bob. Could we do a little discussion next week as well? The beginning, we'll do that as well. Um, does anybody have any thoughts or comments they want to make for a couple minutes? And I do. But yeah, here. I don't think it matters who's president. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. no, you're right, amen. It's just that we um we really did see a religion come to power, didn't we? And I was just thinking as Bob was speaking, at the end of the day all law is a reflection of morals, and morals come from as Charles Hodge coined the term religion. And so someone's religion is going to dominate the laws. It's either going to be a Christian ethos or it's going to be a Marxist ethos. But we have to know that Marxism is a religion. They have a trinity. They break everything into race, class, gender. They Their whole doctrine of salvation comes from taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots. And what Bob was teaching today out of the Eighth Commandment, the only way that you can have property rights is having a biblical worldview. Thou shall not steal is predicated on the individual having the right to own something. Marxism teaches the opposite. How many ever in here ever watched Dr. Zhivago? I was real young, but I'll never forget Dr. Zhivago. If you remember, he's a doctor during the Russian Revolution. The communists come to power. He goes to do his doctor thing out in the country, comes back to his home in the city. I don't know if it was St. Petersburg or where, and they're taking all of his stuff, and he tells them, I own that. And they're ready to arrest him. They say, you own it? Isn't it us, comrade? That's a religion. So thou shall not steal This predicated on the individual being to, uh, made in the image of God and has the right to own something. And so anyway, we can just, um, I know Lonnie had something, and then we'll have to pray and do more um, discussion next week. But Lonnie, why don't you share what you had? Uh, yeah, this is just a quick uh, question I got about. You know, I, I grew up in a church, a United Methodist Church, too, and I remember the two podiums. I was wondering, uh, one of you two, do you know what the concept of that is, the two podiums, because the same thing. The pastor would get up, and he would speak at one, and then for his sermon, he would speak at the other, yeah, Lonnie, I don't know what the history is. I, I think the idea behind it was, well, when they read the Bible, they know that's God's word, and then the words of men came from the pulpit. I think that that was the idea, but I agree with Bob. That's what I saw from the ELCA church when I grew up, is you'd have a little reading from Scripture, which was the truth. Then you'd have him pontificate on nothing relevant, and uh, through the pagan worldview, like the Reader's Digest, what have you. So I saw the same thing, but Bob maybe have a better under- understanding historically why. Uh,
1: they wanted to take the Word of God out of the center. Oh, okay. And then put the sacraments in the middle.
0: Oh. And the Word. Okay, so Bob is saying historically the sacraments, they wanted that to be central. So take the location of the centrality of Scripture and move it off to the side. And, his, and so historically they wanted to put the sacraments in the center. So more of a sacramental, sacerdotal approach rather than through the Word of God. Very interesting, Bob. Yeah, very good. So, oh yeah, Paul. Well, we'll finish up with you, Paul, and then we'll we'll pray... And, yeah, uh, we'll right. F- this do is opening up a can of worms, which I'm sure we don't have time for. But just really quickly, if you could say in Acts the uh, fourth chapter, thirty-second uh, verse, all believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any, that any of his position was his own, but they shared everything that they had. And on and the uh, Ananias and Sapphira story, could you just make a quick comment on how do we view things? Yeah, you know, with the sharing, first of all, it went bad (laughs) because they became destitute. And in fact, they had to have a collection for the Church of Jerusalem. But even so, let's look at where the sharing was done. The sharing was done within the community of Christ. And I even use that in the Matthew 25 It's often abused by Marxist theologians, Tony Campolo et al., What they'll say is, um, as you've done unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, Christ says. But notice, you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren. It's within the community of believers. And God always considers it a moral virtue to be generous with your own possessions and money rather than doing it to others, okay? The, The worldview now is the Marxist in control will be generous with your possessions, okay? And it's not with the community of believers. So a big distinction there, yeah. Yeah, Eric, and then we'll, we'll close. Yeah, uh, and then the other, because this I've been in debates about this particular, you know, and it was voluntary, see? Exactly. The, these was early it people, it was, it was voluntary. Well said, yeah, amen. Um, I'm sorry, with that, we'll, we'll close in prayer, and we'll do a little discussion next week. Great. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for our teacher, Bob, and thank you for his words and uh, all of the time that he spent helping us develop a biblical worldview. Let us continue that and to continue to be about your word, the only stopgap between the pagan world and what you would have for us. And so we pray, Lord, that these doctrines would settle in our minds, that we'd understand them, and, Lord, that you would give us the ability to be salt and light, give us the courage to stand against a dying and decaying world so that we may proclaim the gospel so that some may be saved and others edified. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.